I said last night at uh, the finish of the discussion that we would discuss some of the uh, activities here, the practices and so forth. So, maybe we could open with that, with the, uh, see if there's any questions about lifestyle and so forth from those who are visiting or those who live here. <laughs> May also question. Did you have a question? Uh, I've been reading I'm re- the last part of Aesthetic Vedanta where it talks about um, how body bhakti is important lead to Ravana Bhakti. It just seems like we do a lot of ritualistic, you know, obviously like art is a ritualistic sort of activity. I was just wondering, uh, I was, could you elaborate on why it's so important? Because I, I think I know, but just wondering if you could just sort of explain it so that I definitely do know. Okay, so Madhumangal is asking about something he read in one of my books and something that comes up in our core texts. And that is relationship between Vaidhi Bhakti and Rag Bhakti. So, what are the two? Vaidhi means rules. And Rag means It means um, it means attachment, and it means attachment here in a positive sense, like the attachment one has for a loved one. So to be attached and in love with Krishna, hmm? and to engage in bhakti out of that motive, motivated by that. And so Vaidhi Bhakti then means Bhakti that is motivated differently. It's motivated by rules. It's motivated by the idea that certain things should be done, for example, in relation to the Godhead, certain things shouldn't be done, and therefore I proceed along those lines. This is the basic difference. The two unto themselves have different goals, in a sense. One, the Vaidhi Bhakti, ends up unto itself in a, a reverential relationship with the Godhead, hmm? serving in awe and reverence where the Godhead is overtly perceived uh, in terms of powers and Godhood and so on and so forth. And Raghavakti, by contrast, brings us to a, a destination which the, the deity is intimately uh, associated with, united with, and as I said last night, almost the the bridge, the gap, I should say, between worshipper and worshipped is bridged as the worshipper becomes the, the worship. We call it to becomes the love. Hmm? It's an interesting concept. So we are obviously here interested in in the rag rag bhakti, hmm? this ideal. But at the same time, 
why are we interested in it? Well, in one sense we're interested in it because when we hear about it, it sounds more attractive and intellectually we can think about it and think that sounds better. Hmm? But in the true sense, rag bhakti is not motivated by thinking, only by the heart, by attachment. Hmm? But then how do you arrive at that? <laughs> so it's, in one sense, not something that's easy to arrive at. It's not that you just decide, well, that sounds better. I'll just love love Krishna. I'll just be motivated by that. But, but do you have any taste? Do you have any attachment? Well, here we do, unfortunately, for many other things. Hmm? So we can't just unceremoniously just jump into uh, being a rag bhakta, so to speak. Hmm? But, at the same time, if that is our ideal, then where does that ideal come from? It comes from a rag bhakta, a devotee who is, is treading that path, whom we come in contact with, become inspired. We hear about that path. So again, we've heard about the path. We see it exemplified to one extent or another, and we become attracted to that. And while we are thinking about the path, and that sounds like the best thing to do, we at the same time develop some attachment for the person who is embodying the path and teaching about it. So we develop some rag for a rag devotee, if you will. And... So now we want that goal. We want to follow that uh, that that devotee's ideal that he or she embodies. We're learning all about it, and um, at the same time, we have other attachments to worldly things, to one extent or another. And uh, so, some vidhi, some rules, if you will, can be put into place and that are appropriate, that will help us to wean ourselves from various other attachments. And so we, in this sense, then we mix the two hmm, in a pragmatic way hmm, so that the rag bhakti can be attained. We can't just jump there with our shoes on, so to speak, um, but we don't want to just follow the vaiti bhakti and end up uh, loving in, in awe and reverence. We want love and intimacy with the God, which is what the Radha and Krishna are about, what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is embodying and so forth. So, there's a mixture of the two. As much as we is required, we'll factor in the Vaidhi Bhakti, and as much as is possible, we'll tread the Rag Marg, we'll incorporate elements of that and, under good guidance. So, we may say Vaidhi Bhakti leads to Rag Bhakti. That can be um, a uh, can be a misunderstanding, because as I said, Vaidhi Bhakti leads to a different goal. But if you, in the context of pursuing Rag Bhakti, an inspiration for that, under good guidance, we factor in Vaidhi to help us tread the path of Rag. Ultimately, then in that sense, that kind of Vaidhi Bhakti. Can, kind of a modified form of that. So we do teach that. And um, such uh, 
rules, if you will, it's, uh, or, or guidelines. Uh, it's kind of like, let's say you want to, you just turned 16 and you want to drive your car. And so you just want to hop in and just drive all over the place. But you have to first learn the rules of the road. Then you can drive as far as you want and wherever you want to go. Hmm? But there, nevertheless, there are some rules to the road. If you don't know, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> hmm? Something like that. So, so, so there's some, some guidelines. So when these things are meant to uh, help uh, swing ourselves in various attachments and so forth. So... Let's give an example. Let's say a rag bhakti can sit and chant the name Hare Krishna, Radha Krishna. Hmm? And inside, what's in a name? So, lot, as it turns out. And, you know, like they say, did you get his name? Then you, know, you can get everything about them. Did you get there? You can steal somebody's identity these days, their social security number, and you can empty out their bank account and so forth. So, same kind of principle. In the name, it is said, and in all religious traditions, the Absolute makes itself available in a way that's very generous and, uh, and becomes very accessible. We find it in all different religious traditions, either directly or indirectly, this idea of the name, the logos, is is advocated. In the beginning there was the Word, something like that we find in the Bible. In the Jewish tradition they say the name of God is too sacred, you can't say it. Well, they're saying the same thing, it's, it's, it's a sacred. So um, this idea has been in, in Islam, they have 98 or 99 names and they have beads they chant on and so forth. So it's a, it's a universal kind of religious principle. And in the Krishna Bhakti tradition of Chaitanya, where this kirtan is central, obviously they've, the teachers have plumbed the depths of this idea, which has the potential to unite all religious people, they think, on a basic principle that we have in common. At the same time, having centered its practice on that kirtan, then they have a nuanced understanding of different names representing different aspects of the Absolute, and uh, they develop a the idea of different possibilities of relationships with the Absolute through different names that speak different things about the Absolute and so forth. So it's very interesting dharma, if you will, and theology of of, of the name. Hmm? They've taken this principle and they said, well, let's go with this and go, and go far and deep. Um, they have. And um, so, in that context, Rag Bhakti can sit and chant and in the context of chanting, he or she can experience the form hmm, of Godhead, the, the, the qualities, particular qualities, and leelas, and so forth, in the heart. Hmm? And you yourself can't do that. You can sit and chant, and your mind might go here and there and, and, and everywhere and so forth. Sometimes you'd be thinking about who you're chanting about or why, and sometimes somewhere else you can try to bring it back and, and so forth. So, in fact, I could say, okay, Mother Mongol, sit here and chant. I want you to chant for eight hours. Sit down, chant. You might fall asleep. It's possible. Hmm? So, the name is very generous and everything is found in the name, but we can't fully take advantage 
always of the name. So the Godhead also comes in a, in a ritualistic form, so to speak, in the form of the deity. Hmm? Uh, it's um, it's something like uh, if you can write about the absolutes, then certainly you could it could be depicted in art or in sculpture, something like that, and made accessible. And th- these types of things, the book. I mean, you can say, well, it's only made out of paper and ink and glue. It's impermanent, temporal. We could throw it in the fire, and it's gone, right? Why we don't put the books on the ground here? You know, we, we tend to put them on our head, right? Mm-hmm. We find them, you know, that it's worshipable. We think the text. Mm-hmm. So, at the same time, the argument can be made: we're just worshiping some paper. What's the big deal here? Mm-hmm. But if we read the book, it speaks to us about acting in a particular way that we find brings us in touch with eternity. So we know it's not an ordinary text. It is a medium where time and eternity meet. There's a temporal nature to it and an eternal nature to it. Eternity is manifesting in a temporal form of sorts to bring us in the direction of eternity. So with the book, so with a manifestation of the Godhead in in, in, in paint, like in a painting or a deity altered, so it's the same principle. Hmm. You can say, well, that's just a statue there. You know, it's a little weird here, like bowing down before the statue and so forth. But those who do that under the guidance of the text and follow the kind of ritualistic kind of rules for that, if you will, there's like a world, a realm of ritual, and there are rules how to function in there. Just like as free as we may like to be in our everyday life, we all acknowledge certain rules. We teach them to our children and expect our friends to follow them also. Hmm? Even though you may be free spirits or think of ourselves as such, and so on. Hmm? Um, so, And we don't, we're not burdened by them because they make sense to us. Hmm? And they foster our freedom, as we think of it, like rules of the road, foster your freedom to drive, and, and so on. Hmm? So, not understanding the realm of ritual, then you think, well, these rules, didn't they make any sense, and I'm not sure, and it's a little confusing, and so forth. And someone says, don't do that. Don't do that. And there's a book, Eat, what is it called? Eat, eat Sleep, Sit, I think. That's a different book. That's a popular one, but this is a different one. I think it was Eat, Sleep, Sit. It's written by a young man who lived a year in a Buddhist temple in, uh, in, in somewhere in Asia. I think it's eat, sleep, sit, something like that. Anyway, he talks about his experience and how there were like 10,000 rules that had to do everything. You know, how to eat, what direction to eat, what hand to eat with, what hand to eat, you know, what, everything. You know, before you go to sleep, before you take a bath, a rule for everything. This is like, you know, overwhelming for him. 
in some respects. I didn't read the whole book. I, I read a review of it once. I saw it the other day in a bookstore, too. But um, the point is here that there's, the realm, there's a realm of ritual, and there are rules by which that functions. Now, if you enter into that, and you're living in that realm of ritual, then those rules don't seem odd, and they make sense because they're fostering the experience that the realm of ritual is meant to experience. It's this symbolic representation, manifestation of the ideal. Hmm? And so you're symbolically like, let us say, you know, you're in the Leela with Krishna. Hmm? And so you offer food to Krishna. You know, you, you find Krishna's friends, they pick a fruit from a tree and they give it to Krishna. So here, eat this. They're in an intimate relationship with with Bhagawan. And they eat this. Hmm? And we go, Om... Hmm. You know, it's like this, so this is a symbolic way, so to speak, uh, with ritualistic language and rules that, if properly applied, they foster the experience. And one day the deity would say, do it like this. Why don't you just give it to me? Hmm? Then you know, you're, you're getting somewhere, something like that. <laughs> And, so, and there are many, many, many stories in our lineage of, of that kind of thing. Deity says, "Just can you cook it a little, make it a little hotter when you bring it in here? Something like that. And so you've kind of broken through. So these, so, so, so many rules and so forth, they, they, they make sense as you enter the, the realm. And then the, they don't seem like a burden. But if you don't know what the meaning is and you're not in the realm, so to speak, kind of like visiting it or checking it out, it may seem... Burdensome. That's why sometimes when people come, they aren't familiar with it and they don't follow the rules or they break the rules. I never say anything. Hmm? Because they know they're here, they have the right idea, they want to learn. And if you want to learn and you want to do it right, that's the main thing. Hmm? That's the most important thing. Hmm? And then in time, you'll want to learn the de- de- details and you'll be... Um, more um, in, a, in a teachable moment, so to speak, having gotten experience from being here. But if you just, if you're just, if the, if the person just, oh, well, don't do that, and don't stand over there, don't, they're going to think, I don't know, I want to be here. This is like, you know, so you have to see the uh, the most important thing, their, their, their intention, their desire to be involved in, in a substantial way and so forth. It's not so important. That'll come later. Hmm? You know, if that is fostered, that is encouraged, that'll come later. They'll want to say, they'll see. In fact, we don't have to necessarily tell a person, "Don't do that." They'll, they'll do it, and we'll do it. We'll, we, we'll, we, we, we'll uh, you know, perform that act, and then because they want to learn, they'll say, "Oh, that's the way they do it here." Hmm, okay, well, we'll do it like that too, something like that. So. Um, um, Teaching is obviously um, an art, but <clears throat> once the point is that once we enter into the real spirit of it and get some familiarity and acquaintance and so forth, then the rules don't become rules anymore. They're just like in our everyday experience, we have we could we could be looked at from another cultural's point of cultural's culture's point of view. Like, man, you got all these, you don't do that, and you got to do it like this, and 
and so forth. And we're just thinking, well, that's just how you do things. But they could appear as, and they are, some structure and rules and so forth. So the realm of ritual has some structure to it. And it's meant then to help us um, to move in the direction of, of spontaneity where the rules then become unnecessary in a sense. If you love someone, you know what to do. And and we even have examples of great rag devotees breaking the rules because the deity is saying, do it like this, and somebody else isn't hearing the deity because he's only speaking to that one person. It looks like he's breaking the rules and they think that he's is he's he's crazy and uh but they see that he's very extraordinary at the same time so he's still worshiping the deity for example but he's talking to the deity and arguing with the deity he's saying i can't you know i i can't get up that early anymore i'm old hmm? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they have that kind of discussion you know and so forth and the deity says oh all right then you know, <laughs> sleep it off yeah there's a famous story of Sanatana Goswami, one of the great uh, charges, the great teachers in our lineage, and he was in Vrindavan, the idyllic uh, pastoral land of Krishna in India, and and, um, and it was very rural at, at that time, and uh, he was living on a hilltop, and you could see the, the delta of the Jamuna River, and so it's a very beautiful place. I've been there many times. And he had a deity that was... Uh, give it to him and he didn't have any altar temple or anything so he, he used to hang the deity from a tree in some way suspend the deity from a tree which was kind of, kind of comfortable I guess with a rope in some way you know and then um, he would um, he had only uh, he uh, someone would come by every so often and give him some some wheat so he'd take the wheat mix it with water and and make a little stone oven and put it in there. So it's a pretty crude form of bread and so forth. And that's all he had. So that's what he offered. Hmm? So he's offering that and worshiping and so forth. And then one day the deity said to him, can't you add a little salt? And so he said, look, that's all I got. First, and first thing you know, you want salt, then you're going to want, you know, ghee. And then you're going to want, you know, vegetables. And, and you know, and I, I know you. And I don't have that, you know. Hmm? So this is an example, even in the realm of kind of ritual, so which has been transcended, but ostensibly he seems to be having a relationship with a symbolic form, but in reality he's not. And um, he's arguing, you know, and, and he wins. But anyway, this, so the deed says, okay, well, whatever. And then that night, a barge came along the Jamuna River, a salt barge. Hmm? A merchant who was uh, had a salt mine was taking his goods to be, to be sold in the big city. And it got stuck on a sandbar in the Jamuna River, coincidentally. And and um, and so in the night, the story is that a boy came and told the captain of the barge, do like this and like this and you'll get out of the sandbar and so forth and it'll go. So... Um, it was freed up, and he said, "Wow, thank you. How did you do that?" And I said, "It's amazing. I, I, how could you know that?" And, I, and he, and he, what can I do for you? You know, you, I was stuck here. I would have lost all my sails and so forth. And he said, "Well, look, there's a guy up on the hill. He needs some salt. So when you come back, you know, you know, something like that, something like that." He said, 
And so, anyway, the man came back, sold all his goods, came back, met Sanatana Goswami, and saw the deity, and understood that the deity had come, was the boy, had told him that, and the boy, and he was astounded. So he built, with the money from me, which he sold, the salt, he built a temple hmm, for the deity. And that temple is still there, a big stone temple, famous temple, Manamohan temple. Hmm? And so then all kind of nice things are offered there. But right next to that temple is the place where Sanatan had his oven, and they still make that same bread every day with no salt. They offer that always <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, uh, so there are many, many, many examples of this. So we have confidence that such possibilities are there, and with that spirit, we em- embrace the realm of, of ritual and all of its different um, guidelines and so on and so forth. And we kind of live here centered around the deity. The deity has a schedule, just like every we do. We get up at a certain time, basically. We bathe, we dress, we eat, we might want some entertainment, uh, and so forth. So we, we rise, we bathe, we wake the deity. We entertain the deity. We sing songs about the deity and about the different times of the day relative to the deity's life. We, 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 we glorify that. It's poem and poetry and so forth. We put it to song. After the song is sung, arati. Arati means arati. Arati means night. So arati means like end of night, end of darkness. The first arati is early in the morning before the light. And we shed a light on what's worth thinking about and seeing. The Godhead is the idea. So we shine the light and like this. That's the main part of the arati, the light. Then there are other other elements like the incense, which is earth. Scent comes from earth. There's the fan, which means like symbolizes the air. Hmm? Uh, sky, air, air, let's say. There's the conch, which you blow. That's the sound. Sound corresponds with space. Hmm? So you, you, know, you have fire, which is the light, and you have water, which is taste. Hmm? So you have earth, water, fire, air, ether, or sky, five elements, solidity, liquidity, heat, hmm? movement, hmm? Uh, space, akash. So these are we're made up of these things in a sense. The world, if from a kind of Bhagwat elementary, you know, elemental point of view. These are the five constituents. So we take items that represent those different things, and we are offering them to the deity, and they have a pleasing way. The, in, the scent of the incense and the light we shine, and we we, we see the deity and so forth, and uh, the flower hmm, again, a scent and so forth. These different items, and then our our physical self is constituted of these things so in a sense the ego behind it or the spirit behind the, 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 the uh, behind the whole offering is I'm offering all of the elements that I'm constituted of materially speaking in your service hmm? and that I might come out from underneath that covering hmm? and know myself as I am and know you as you are something like that so we do the artik, and someone's fortunate to offer that artik, and then others in the morning are singing, and then after the singing, then they have different duties that they do. Some, they don't have any duty, then they're chanting, hmm? or they're reading, 
where they go when they cook. Deity has to eat a breakfast. Someone else is arranging bathing, and then at least one of the deities, there are different deities there. They're they're bathed and with different scents and things like that. And there's a whole ritual for the dressing and decorating and so forth. It's all meditation. Hmm? So someone does that, and uh, you may have many people involved in that. Someone's grinding the sandalwood paste, which is part of the offering, especially on a hot day, because if you take the sandalwood paste with water, sandalwood block, and turn it into paste, and you put it on your forehead, it has a cooling effect. So, hmm? the hottest day of the year, we take the deity and completely cover with sandalwood paste, hmm? something like that. That's a typical ritual. So someone's doing that. Someone else is making the breakfast. Someone else is is doing the bathing, someone else is making a garland, hmm? and so forth. So the whole, and others are doing japa, chanting, and meditating on the lila of the Christian at this time of day. Chaitanya is doing this, and so forth, and so on. Hmm? That's the idea. And then, mornings basically ends, and the devotees then, they take the remnants of the offering, the breakfast, and so forth. Hmm? They eat, and from that, they they're living, so to speak, on not on. They're not eating. They're thinking. They're honoring what's left, what's been offered. Their life is an offering, so they're offering entirely. But some of the offering is left over, so they honor that also. Hmm? This is like the remnants of the deity. So we we'll take that, and we are. There's two sides to it. The, the high side is we're we're honoring it, hmm? and the lower side is that w- that we're we're driving energy from it, as well, hmm? and we use that energy to do more, more service, something like that. And then the spirit that I'm being maintained by the deity. I'm not really worrying about what I'll eat today or so forth. We're about what Krishna will eat and make it nice and and so forth. Of course, now everybody's not perfect, so somebody will think, I'd like to eat that, so I'll offer that, you know. So that has to gradually goes away. <laughs> As we find, we get reciprocation from the deity, and we go, oh gee, the deity really is there. And we, we start to get experience. And all of this, I started talking about in relation to, for example, you or others' inability to sit and just chant. Hmm? And have a relationship with the deity through the name, because you might fall asleep. Now, Comparatively, if I say to you, Manamongo, sit here and chant for you know five hours, well, which will at a certain stage will a devotee be able to be more attentive at that, or if I say cook, now sing, dance, hmm? you see, it's hard to fall asleep while you're standing there offering those things to the deity and so forth or addressing. So, it's another merciful kind of manifestation of the absolute that comes to help us in our aspiration, that we're not really qualified to to fully access. We want to sit and chant and just enter into all the possibilities that lie there. Hmm? So it helps us in, in our chanting, so to speak. Hmm? And um, it has a great capacity to consume one's senses and one's mind. It's very occupying, especially in the beginning, because there's all these guidelines you have to follow and you have to pay attention and so forth. You get really absorbed, and you 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 lose track of your your you know you 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 find yourself separated from your thoughts. It's very powerful, and you find yourself coming out and what you really are, what your possibilities are, and very blissful. Hmm? 
it's ecstatic. The devotee feels ecstasy. Then he sits and chants, and he has some, has some power to 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 recollect and uh, and be attentive and so forth. Then his or her karma comes and arrests them and back to normal consciousness. So get busy. Hmm? You know, there are chanting is called kirtanam, hearing is called shravanam, shravanam, kirtanam. We say here we do shravanam, kirtanam, scrubanam, mapanam, and and, <laughs> and other type of things. <laughs> so because not everybody can just sit and hear and chant. Hmm? So the deity then is very kind of very gracious, merciful kind of manifestation of the of the of the of, of the goddess that is approached through ritual language and so forth. But not everybody can just jump in there and do that. So we generally tend to give devotees bees to chant that the guru has chanted on, a blessing to chant, and send under some guidance. Then at a certain point of chanting, we give them other mantras, another initiation. And they enter formally into all the ritualistic practices. They learn about those, participate in those, and so forth. And then that, in turn, helps them to chant and so on. So, then it, you know, it goes on in extended ways. Obviously, there are the direct activities like cooking for the deity, and then others are putting seeds in the greenhouse and growing the seeds. And uh, we, 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 our ideal is not to buy anything for more reasons than one, uh, but to, to produce our own. And in local, you know, economy, and so forth, that makes sense environmentally. That's uh, sustainable, and uh, and so forth. But also, it gives us the chance to uh, be engaged in in bhakti as a lifestyle from beginning to end. Food is a big thing here. Hmm? The deity likes to eat. As I said, he asks for salt, and then what? You know, so so. If you plant the seed and then you take the seedling and you plant it in the soil and you have already before that you've prepared the soil and so on and then the, and you have to weed it and it grows and then you pick it and then you prepare it and then you cook it and then you offer it and this is a whole whole lifestyle and if you're doing it right then you're there hoe in the field and you're thinking about you know serving the deity nice tomatoes and eggplants and you're going to do it real nicely and so forth. And sometimes devotees get kind of get disconnected and think, I'm just out here in a field. I thought I came here to be, you know, a meditator or something. But you got to put it together with a little philosophy and so forth. And you meditate as much as you can, but <laughs> how much can you meditate? So this is an extended kind of form of that. And all the activities you do, and then it ex- extends beyond it into, into publishing, for example, writing about hmm, the the underlying philosophy and the theology and so forth, and explaining it. And then some people are helping with that, to edit that and to publish that and design that and and so on. There may be construction of buildings. And then there's the deity's cows. And so we take care of his cows and and um, and the milk and we share the product. So there's a whole kind of uh, consuming uh, lifestyle centered around the deity. And this way we mix the Vaidhi Bhakti and the Rag Bhakti and at a certain point because one's senses are pretty well consumed in relation to sense objects that are all for the deity, for example, one starts eventually to get some capacity to really concentrate, meditate in your internal experience. And as the internal experience starts to grow, 
then there can be more of a um, uh, pushing back from direct engagement in the ritualistic activity because the fruit of that is being experienced just through the chanting, for example, or just through um, um, meditation. So sometimes we'll find that uh, um, devotees, they, they aren't engaged in all those things. They may be in a community, maybe one person sits in a room and reads and thinks and and chants and everybody's really busy all around. Something like that. <clears throat> so, and it's a, it's a lifestyle, so we do augment in the meditation a certain amount every day and and so on. In due course, as you get older and whatnot, then uh, uh, you've been and more proficient to practice your capacity to um, to really tread the path of rag bhakti hmm, is increased, and to whatever extent in the next lifetime, if not complete, you'll take birth with such a favorable wind, you'll be like the you were like you know just. Here's this guy. He never made it too much, you know. But he was there. He's sincere. Next life, is everything. So he's just wonder, you know. She's wow. Hit the ground running here, you know. Entered the temple and knew everything, you know. So many things, <laughs> something like that. So uh, does that help? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering how the transition from Bhai Bhakti to Rag Bhakti goes. Naturally, naturally, without. Um, thinking about it. It's not a forced thing. Hmm? Here's here's how you have to think about it. Uh, my ideal is Rag Bhakti. I want to have intimate relationship with Radha and Krishna. Hmm? Okay, let's say for example, this is my ideal. I don't want to go to uh, the, the, the the realm of awe and reverence. I'm not, I don't find it attractive. When I read about the Vrindavan Leela of Krishna, I find it very charming and attractive. So this is my ideal. Hmm? And so, that sense, we call we call it this. We call it ajata ruchi rag bhakti. Rag bhakti without ruchi, without a taste, without real attachment. Now how can you have attachment bhakti <laughs> without attachment? Hmm? It's kind of an oxymoron, it's, it's contradictory. But our attachment is for, for, the, for the guru, for example. Hmm? And... Um, and in it following his or her example, so we are kind of a rag bhakta in 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 apprenticeship, hmm? and then we have some rules that are given by the ashram or by the guru. He says, "Do this, follow that, and so forth." We follow them, hmm? but we have this as our ideal. So we are following the rag path. You are following the rag path, but at this point, certain. Um, Guidelines will be important for you, and to the extent to which they're not, when that'll become happen naturally. Hmm? When the deity starts talking to you, then you, well, you know you can, without having to think about it, you won't say, uh, "Om, okay," uh, you know, whatever. You know. <laughs> You'll uh, so something like that. So it's not something to get mental about and wonder how. How do I make the transition? It happens naturally. Taste will come. This is what happens. What happens is your faith will grow from experience, from hearing the the, the logic of spirituality. Spiritual logic. Hear spiritual logic will be appealing to you. 
Because why? <laughs> because you have some, all of us have some background in this. This is, it takes a long time to, to come here to be, to be where we are. So we have some background in this. So there's a certain logic that will be appealing to us. Why the bhakti logic is, is, is appealing to us? Because we've had some association somewhere at a distant time, lifetime, and it's it's pre pre uh, kind of it's uh, uh, um, giving us a sangskar, a tendency for it, and so it, it, it it's, appe- it's appealing. Hmm? So we we have the sacred text, and we have logic about them, the implications of them. So we talk about, so we hear that 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 helps our faith, our conviction to grow. Faith is kind of almost like understanding. Faith is like doubts are gone. It's a good thing. Sometimes faith is like, well, there must be something wrong. You only have faith. No, faith means the doubts are gone. So there's freedom now. Because doubts, suspicion leads to suspension. We all have suspicion about why we do like this, why like Guru Maharaj said this, but I don't know about that. And so and so on. So as they're removed, we're freed up, so to speak. Hmm? And so, faith grows, experience comes, then practice becomes steady. It doesn't become intermittent, up and down. It becomes steady. Hmm? So this is a transition. It becomes, it becomes e- easy to do, easy to rise, easy to sit, chant, and follow. And, hmm? and, uh, so that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And from steadiness, then comes taste. Hmm. Steadiness in the practice continually comes a taste. The way I, used to, I, I have described it like this: when the, when the medicine starts to become food, hmm? this is when rag bhakti really starts to bud. Hmm? In ruchi, it's a stage. Ruchi means taste. You have a taste for bhakti, and it means, by contrast, it's been described: nadanam nadanam nasundarim kabitamba. Taste for bhakti has been described as nadanam, nadanam, nasundaram. Na means no interest in wealth, no interest in, in, in um, let's say, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the opposite sex or in uh, followers and uh, prestige. And not this, not that, no interest. So that, so that taste can't be imitated or misunderstood. In other words, can we really see someone's taste? We, we could see he seems enthusiastic, seems to have a taste, but if he has a taste for other thing, we know oh he doesn't really have a taste for bhakti <laughs> yet entirely. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes been described like this: taste for Krishna bhakti mm, means no taste for this, no taste for that, no taste for that. That's visible. Mm-hmm. We can see that, mm-hmm. and if along with that we see he or she really likes the chant, it's not. Problematic likes to speak about. You got to say, you know, stop, Grimmarge. It's getting late. You know, you talk for too long. Something like that. Uh, so, <laughs> something like that. You know, you can find the guru is quite old, and the, the disciples saying, you have to stop now. You know, too much. Uh, your health, your heart. You're getting too excited about that. That point. You know, something like that. So, that's ruchi. From ruchi comes real attachment for Krishna in a particular way. Then one enters into bhakti and ecstasy, and then from there bhakti and prema and love. So these are the stages. But um, when ruchi comes, then 
then this rag, rag proper, so to speak, is coming from apprenticeship in rag more towards actual rag. It's coming. Do you understand? Yeah. That helpful? It's the spirit that you execute your body bhakti in. I guess that's right. I, when I asked that question, I was just wondering how body bhaktas can do body bhakti for lifetimes and not become rag bhaktas. Because they do it with a different motivation. Vaidhi bhaktas do vaidhi bhakti with the motivation to serve Narayana in in awe and reverence, hmm? and so that's their path, and that's fine. Some people, you know, that's their ideal, and there are lineages for that also for that kind of bhakti. Hmm? And it's, each one, of course, thinks theirs is the best, and they have their different reasoning, and they're all right in some respects. Hmm? And they have a different take on our kind of bhakti. Hmm? It's very interesting. They will think they don't know. They have. A t- <laughs> they don't know about the realm that is our ideal. But in reverential bhakti, there's a partial manifestation of that hmm? in Bhakuntham, This 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 realm. There's a partial manifestation that Narayan shows sometimes. Hmm? <laughs> And so they think, well, that's what they're interested in. They're interested in that aspect of Narayan. Hmm? Sometimes Narayan shows for a moment, or sometimes those those kinds of leelas, the Krishna leela. They think Krishna is an avatar of Narayan. Hmm? He's a partial manifestation of Narayan as the fountainhead of all of all bhakti. Hmm? And they think like that. And so they think, oh, we're interested in that aspect. And we say, well, actually, it was a little bit different. We physically... But then there are philosophical, you know, discussions and so on, and we, we, everyone, honors the different tastes and so forth. But there are distinct lineages, actually. Hmm? There are lineages focusing on Ram Bhakti and on Narayan Bhakti and and uh, Krishna Bhakti, but this uh, you know, this Kirtan-centered one is very much about uh, Krishna Bhakti and, and Raga Bhakti in relation to Krishna. So yeah, so we, you will do some vaidhi bhakti, but with a different motive. Your motive is for rag bhakti. Hmm? Others will do vaidhi bhakti, and the motive is is to attain the the ideal of of uh, vaidhi bhakti. Hmm? Gradually, the rag will take over, and the body will be left behind. In it, in the case of devotees here, that's interesting, huh? Is, is yeah. your attraction? Predetermined? It, well, um, it it uh, generally what happens is that you will be connected with a lineage that takes you where you're supposed to go. So the Godhead knows how the Godhead would like to accept service from us in eternity. In that sense, you could say it's predestined, and then. It plays itself out as if it's a choice, and so forth. And the lineage is sent to you, and you meet a guru, and make the choice, and it's happening, and and so forth, and so on. So it's a little bit of both, in a sense. But generally, yeah, you have a destiny, and the lineage comes to help you in that, fulfill that, or reach that, attain that. It's also possible. You, well, yeah, that's the basic idea. Good enough to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question? No. What's the time now? Still have a little time, huh? 
Any other questions? That did we did go over the little bit of the whole what goes on here, I guess, to some extent. Which was the intention, thanks to your good question. You have a good mind for understanding these things. That's good comes some theistic intelligence. Some that predisposes you for for learning. So you made it through aesthetic Vedanta. It's a little heady. Oh well, you know those. Guys, it's very condensed book, and then it's it's so it's like ghee is very condensed food. So someone who's very sick, sometimes an Indian, with like amoebic dysentery, can't eat anything. So then the Ayurvedic doctor would say, give him a spoonful of ghee, and you say, what? He'll immediately vomit that up. It's so rich. Yes, but a tiny bit will stick, and it's so potent the food. That he'll be nourished by that and get some strength, something like that. So sometimes you take a high book and you give it, and says, you don't understand anything, but you read it, and, and something's there and sticks, and you don't even know it. You're nourished from it, something like that. Yes. Can I ask a question about Sayyidina? Yeah, sure. Me and Shamananda were actually talking about this a few times. Shamananda and I. Shamananda and I. In <laughs> um, your description of the Leela, of the um, the gopis know that Krishna is God. Do they, or you say they do? Well, I thought I, the way I read it, I thought they did, but I guess I'm asking you if they do. They've heard that. So sometimes they they say we know that we've heard that. That's not important to them. Hmm? It's insignificant to them. It's like saying. Um, the president's mother knows that he's a president. But it's not of, as much cons- of consequence. She knows, oh, you know, he's like this. That's my boy. Hmm? Something like that. It's a, it's a, he's the president. That's like secondary. Some people are like, hey, he's the president, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President. You know, microphones and what's Mr. President going to say and so forth. And, and she sees that, well, that's an aspect of him that people are focused on. I've heard that, but it doesn't really have that much consequence for me. Hmm? In fact, the gopis, they tend to think that it was said at Krishna's birth by the astrologer that 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 Narayan will do wonderful things through him. That's a way of interpreting the, the Sanskrit, rather than saying he will be not he is Narayan. So Narayan will do. So they think, oh, Narayan is doing wonderful things through him. That's what's really happening. Um, sometimes in the language where they praise Krishna, they'll say like, yeah, like, uh, like when the gopis met Krishna at Kurukshetra after a long time, he said, you know, I apologize to you for being away. I had a lot of things to do, you know, but what can be done? You know, destiny separates us and brings us back together and so forth. Hmm? So, it's really not my fault. And they said, well, you're God, so I, it is your fault. What are you talking about? <laughs> hmm? So, there's some kind of ways they, they kind of know, but it's you don't really talk to God like that. <laughs> so, then he was in trouble. He said, well, yeah, you got me there on that. And so, then he philosophized further and so forth. And I know it's a beautiful story, but we won't go into it. But some sense is there at, at, at times, but it's not 
uh, what uh, is prominent. Hmm. Does that help? Like Krishna lifts the Govardhan hill in the Leela with his little finger in his left hand and his friends are there with their sticks also holding it or helping him hold it up. Hmm. They think, how can he do that? He's just like one of us. Hmm. At the same time, he does wonderful things. And they think, oh, yeah, I guess he's, he's a little different, but anyway. Yeah. We've got a cool friend, that's what it is. <laughs> Something like that. Now, in other types of bhakti in relation to Krishna, outside of this intimate realm, then they know his God more. Hmm? That takes precedent. So there are examples of devotees who have like parental love for Krishna, but when he shows his godhood, it takes precedent and that love recedes. Hmm? Whereas in Vrindavan, in this intimate circle, if Krishna should show his godhood, it only augments their particular kind of intimate love for him. Hmm? It doesn't get in the way. That's a very interesting idea. When Krishna left Vrindavan, apparently he didn't leave because the devotees love him so much there that that's where he really is. But he manifests himself other place for other leelas with other devotees to show as well how deep is the love in Vrindavan. They couldn't let go of him left for a long time and so forth. When Uddhava came from Dwarka to bring a message from Krishna, I'm coming back soon, please hang on, and so forth. Uddhava talked to Nanda Maharaj, father of Krishna in the Leela, the king of the cowherd community, and he said, um, he said, your son is so extraordinary, you're so lucky. Hmm? I mean, I can't, you have, the Krishna is like appearing as your son, I know, yeah, he's God. You know, and he, I, he's appearing at your son. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Incredibly, you're so fortunate. And then the Maharaj says, fortunate? What are you, crazy? Huh? Yeah, he's God. Okay, great. He's my son. But he's over there. It's horrible. You know, right? <laughs> How can I live without him? So he would have been looking like, oh man, this is like some kind of devotion I've never seen before. This is extraordinary. Uddhava is Krishna's advisor in Dwarka, in his princely Leela. He sent him there to instruct the inhabitants, give us a message, I'm coming soon, but really to instruct Uddhava about a higher kind of devotion even, so to speak. He was, he was just he was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. They know he's God, kind of, but it's like a problem for them even. Or, you know, so he was uh, very inspired there. Hmm. Very, so this is a high idea, obviously. You know, you can't just like think, yeah, I'll do that. I'll have a relationship. It's a nice idea. I'll have a relationship with God like that. That sounds like my ideal. It's so intense and so intimate and so forth. But then to get there, there are some steps to take. That it takes a while. But as you, if you become attached to that idea and you understand it, as you hear about it more, you think, yeah, wow, that is really interesting. That's appealing. And faith in that grows. And so then you can't like, even though you're so far away from really getting there, being there, you can't leave that path. And other things will be offered. You could have mukti. People are spending their lives in the Himalayas, you know, just for mukti, just in, just dressing in ashes just to get mukti. And the devotee's ideal, they become so attached to the ideal, which is like here, let's say, and they're here in their reality, it seems. But that attachment 
for the ideal is so strong that even if Mukti comes and offers herself, they say, okay, not interested. You could go to Vaikuntha, reverential love, take it. No, I'm not interested. Then they go there very quickly. Hmm? That happens. Hmm? To their ideal. Hmm? So attachment to the ideal is the most important thing. Hmm? That's the hub. Which is the orb, the hub, the orb, we orbit around. Hmm? I want that kind of bhakti. Hmm? It's a very, um, you can understand, it's very appealing to think like that from the Absolute's perspective, from the Godhead's perspective. There's no one like God. What a lonely situation. <laughs> you know, so, people like me, hmm? intimacy, something like that. I'll become like them. I'm forced by their love to become like them. Hmm? I have community now. <laughs> so, something like that. This is kind of the theological idea behind it. So it becomes attra- it's very attractive. So having that ideal is very attractive to Krishna. Bring gets his attention more than anything else. And then we quickly tread the path. Alright, we'll stop there. Sri Adayadham Kijai.